Our first reading of scripture this morning is uh, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 116. Feel free to read along or uh, listen as I read. Here now the reading of God's word. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, uh, brothers and sisters. I invite you to open uh, your Bibles to the 18th uh, chapter of the uh, Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be looking at this parable taught by Jesus uh, about the unjust judge and the persistent widow. And before reading the text of uh, today's uh, message, allow me to give a few introductory remarks regarding uh, this uh, passage. And unlike many of the other parables, this parable is found only here in the Gospel of Luke. And as we will see, one of the main themes in this parable is about the Christian doctrine of prayer. But to better understand the context in which this parable is told, Jesus, in the previous chapter 17, he had been speaking about his second coming. And now he turns to the practice of prayer. So this passage of on prayer is linked to the previous eschatological discourse by the reference in Luke 18.8, as we will see about the Son of Man's return. J.C. Ryle notes that the words here of Jesus in this passage are closely linked to the solemn words about the second coming at the end of the last chapter. Jesus is urging his disciples to prayer without fainting during the long, weary interval between the first and second comings. We ourselves are standing in that interval between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And the relationship between this life the already of the kingdom of God 
and the age to come, the not yet of the kingdom, whether when we die or when the Son of Man returns, continues to shape the priorities of the Christian life. And we all know that one of these priorities of living out the Christian life, one of the priorities of the church, of every believer, is prayer. Now, as we'll see, this parable does not teach us everything about the Christian doctrine of prayer, and there is much that can be said regarding prayer, but the teaching of Jesus in this parable is to encourage his disciples, is to encourage his followers, is to encourage the elect, the church, to pray. To pray faithfully, to pray frequently, to pray confidently, to pray expectantly, and for the church to be persevering in prayer until the time that the Lord comes back again. Now, having said that, Jesus teaches more than prayer in this parable. He's also teaching us about something about God the Father. And he's teaching us about the God in whom we believe. This parable also teaches us about who God is and the relationship that he has with his elect, his covenant people. So let's look into this parable today. So here now, God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, and life-giving word. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the God. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, and as we turn to the preaching of your word, we pray for the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, to give us ears to hear and minds to understand and eyes to see and a heart to believe and that are receptive to your word. Help us to see all your glory, all your steadfast love and your faithfulness and all your grace that we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go if you are the one who has words of eternal life? We trust in no one but you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings. So first, we're going to see the call for the Christian who prays. Second, we're going to see the challenges for the Christian who prays. And lastly, we're going to see the confidence for the Christian who prays. So we're going to look at the call the challenges, and the confidence for the Christian who prays. So first, the call for the Christian who prays. Look at me on verse 1. 
And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So from the outset, we see here in verse 1 the purpose of this parable. Christians are called to be faithful in prayer. We ought always to pray. So the first question we need to ask is, what does Jesus mean when Christians ought always to pray? Or what does it mean when the scripture encourages us about the practice of prayer that we are to pray without ceasing? We are always to pray or we are to pray without ceasing. Well, first, let me explain what this verse does not mean. We all know that we cannot pray every hour of the day or for 24 hours. Or many of us, we don't know that we don't pray like Martin Luther used to pray three hours a day before going about his ministry in the church. And we also know that sometimes we don't pray like three times a day like Daniel used to pray. Or that we're supposed to pray a specific amount of time. Or always to pray. The point here is that Christians, we ought to have a spirit of prayer. We ought to have a, a habit of prayer. We ought to have a frame of mind of prayer. We ought always to be ready to pray at all times and in all uh, circumstances. Think about a group of soldiers that are protecting a base. You know, they have their uniforms on, they have their weapons on, and they're ready to fight and protect the base at all uh, costs. Are they fighting all the time? No. Is there a threat or a danger all the time to the base? No. But they're ready to fight, and they have their armor, and they have their uh, weapons. And even when times are, are peaceful, they train, they have drills, and they put on their armor, and they use their weapons in order to be ready to pray in case the need to defend the base eventually arrives. And it's the same uh, with us. We are always to be ready to pray. We only don't pray like in the heat of the moment. We only don't pray when temptation uh, comes. We pray beforehand. Remember what Jesus told his disciples on the night uh, before he got uh, crucified? He said, pray so that you may not fall into temptation. Because Jesus said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we just don't pray. Of course, when the temptation comes, we do pray in the heat of the moment. But Jesus, the Lord, is telling us here that the importance of praying beforehand, the importance of preparing our hearts before the situation comes, before the temptation actually arrives. And we pray in all details and circumstances in life. I like what one pastor said. He said, in every trial, in every temptation, in every triumph, in every joy, in every sorrow, when the future is uncertain, and when you're tempted to worry, in everything we pray. And one of the marvelous things in the book of Psalms, as we read uh, the scriptures, is that we find the psalmist praying not only in moments of distress and agony and hurt and affliction and disillusionment, but we find them praying in moments of joy, in moments of triumph in moments of victories and thanksgiving and praising God for the things he has done. And allow me to ask you one question. When you receive good news or when you receive bad news, when you just accomplish something great, when you had a victory or you had a triumph or when you are disappointed and had a setback, what is our natural reaction to these situations? 
What is the first thing that we do, whether when we receive good news or when we receive a bad news? Do we go to our Lord in prayer? I remember when the scriptures in the king Hezekiah, he received a threatening letter from the king of Assyria, and they were about to invade uh, Jerusalem. And you know what was that? his natural reaction as he received that threatening letter from this invading army? Immediately, the scripture says that he took that letter, he went before the Lord in the temple, and he spread out the letter before the Lord in the temple. And you know what he did? He prayed to the Lord. That was his natural reaction. The first thing that he did when he received those threatening news. Remember when Mary received the news, the great news of salvation from uh, the angel uh, Gabriel, that she was going to be the mother of the, the Messiah. She was going to be the mother of the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. She sings a song to the Lord called the Magnificat. And in that song, do you know that Mary... Being a young lady, she mentions and references over 11 Old Testament books. In that short song that we might call a prayer to God, a song of prayer, she mentions 11 Old Testament books. The natural reaction of Hezekiah in a threatening letter, the natural reaction of Mary when she received good news was to go to God in prayer. And the scriptures was just overflowing from their uh, hearts. And like the psalmist, that they are always laying out their requests in moments of agony or in moments of distress or in moments of joy, they are laying out their requests before the throne of grace of our Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Is that our natural reaction when we receive either good news or bad news? Because you see, the fear here in this verse is that a lot of times, and it's natural to us, we might give up praying for a certain specific circumstance or a certain specific need. Because look again on verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Not lose heart. Not become weary not giving up, not fainting, not become discouraged. So sometimes we do stop praying because we become discouraged. We pray for the sick and they don't get healed. We pray for provision and we still don't have a job. We pray for someone to get saved and after one decade, that person is still is an unbeliever. And all these things, among many other things, this apparent delay in response to our prayers can cause us to lose heart, can cause us to become a discouraged, can cause us to be discouraged uh, with our prayers, and perhaps even our prayer life. But I love the words of uh, Matthew Henry. He said, we must pray and never grow weary of praying nor thinking of leaving it off, leaving the practice of prayer off, till it comes to be swallowed up in everlasting praise. Our prayers, not leaving it up, until it comes to be swallowed up in everlasting praise. Until that time comes, when the Lord comes back again, not only our prayers are going to be swallowed up in everlasting praise, but all of our sufferings are going to be swallowed up in everlasting praise. Romans 8, 
that the temporal sufferings of this world cannot be compared with the glory that is to be revealed when the Lord comes back again. Now, to enforce this concept that one ought always to pray and not lose heart and the challenges we will encounter, the Lord tells this parable in which there are two explicit actors, as we read. There is this unjust judge and there's a widow, but also there's another main character in the parable, and it is the Lord himself. It is God himself. So look now at some of the challenges for the Christian who prays, some of the adversity we are going to encounter as we live out the Christian life. So the first challenge we see here, told by Jesus, is ungodliness. Look at me on verse 2. So Jesus began by introducing the judge and giving a description of the judge. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. So the first thing we learn about this judge is that he is un an ungodly man. He does not fear God. And fear of God is not only essential for all Christians, but fear of God is essential also for a good judge. But this man could care less about God's laws and commandments. He had no respect for God. He had no reverence towards God. He actually, in verse 4, he openly admits, he says, Though I neither fear God, at least he's being honest about who he is. He's saying that he does not fear God. But on top of being ungodly, this judge was ungracious. He was unloving. He was unmerciful, and he had no regard for men or this widow. For he said, uh, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. So this judge neither feared God nor respected men. He lacked the very two qualities which are most necessary for true justice. Remember how Jesus summed up the entire law as love for God and love for neighbor. And this judge had neither. He had no love for God or respect for God or love for the neighbor. And this is one of the challenges we will encounter as Christians, not only as we live out the Christian life, but as we pray for God to vindicate us. Until the day that the kingdom of God will come in its full manifestation, ungodliness is going to be widespread. Unrighteousness is going to be widespread in all the world. Wickedness is going to be widespread. Opposition to God, opposition to his word, opposition to his son, as we read in, in, in Psalm 2, that the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth do what? They set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed one. We see opposition to the son. We see opposition to his followers is the reality of living the Christian life in the night yet of the kingdom. Only because of the fact that we bear the name of Christ. Because we are united to Christ by virtue of our identification with Christ comes rejection. We live in a hostile world to Christ, to his teaching, to his commandments, to his followers. We are going to be persecuted for our faith. We are going to be persecuted, as Jesus said, for righteousness' sake. And many times we are going to experience injustice. Just because we are followers of Christ. Like this widow was experiencing at the hands of this ungodly judge who had neither fear of God nor respect for men. So now enter the widow into the parable. 
Luke Omeon, verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, Jesus does not give the specifics uh, details in this passage, but she had been clearly wrong and she was crying out for justice. Apparently, this widow didn't have money to hire a lawyer or no one to protect her because the text says that she was the one that kept coming to the judge. She could have been fighting for things related to her inheritance as a widow. Perhaps she did not get her rightful share of her uh, husband's property. Perhaps someone had uh, taken away the little uh, that she had or she was unjustly treated by someone that had taken advantage of her defenseless uh, widowhood. And she went on protection against her enemy's lawless actions. We know that she was seeking justice because she had been wronged by someone. And she kept going to the judge over and over again, but to no avail. But to no avail, because the text says that the other challenge for the Christian who prays is delay. Is delay in getting an answer. Delay in being vindicated. Look at me on verse 4. For a while, the judge, he refused. For a while, the judge refused to give her justice. Remember that Jesus called him an unrighteous judge. This judge openly admitted that he had no fear for God or respect for men. And maybe he was expecting a bribe. We don't know. But for a while, he delayed granting justice to this widow. And we are going to see here that Jesus is not comparing God to this judge. There's a sharp contrast between the unrighteous God and God who is just. The judge in this parable is not. Let me say, the judge in this parable is not a representation of whom God is. We're going to see that when we pray, we pray to a righteous God. We pray to a just uh, God. The point here is that one of the challenges when Christian prays, when we pray, is delay. And many times when we pray, we're going to have to be patient and persistent in our waiting. But delay in being vindicated by God, delay in getting an answer from our, to our prayers does not mean that God is indifferent to our needs. It does not mean that God is indifferent to our problems. It doesn't mean that God is indifferent to the needs of his people, his sheep, to his elect. Because looking at the testimony of the scriptures, delaying an answer to prayer, delaying seeing God's promises realized is a reality is a reality. How long did Abraham had to wait for the son of promise, Isaac? God calls him when he was 75 years old. He had Isaac when he was 100 years old. I like math, and it's an easy math, 25 years that he waited for God's promise to be realized. But imagine how Abraham felt. Abram used to be called, Abraham used to be called Abram, which means exalted father. Abraham means the father of many. So imagine Abraham in his interactions with uh, the business that he used to do. What is your name? First, Abraham, exalted father. Exalted father, how many children do you have? None. And Abraham is 30 years old. What's your name? Exalted father. How many children do you have, exalted father? None. And then 30, and then 40, and then 50, and then 75. God changes his name to Abraham, a father of nations, or father of many. Oh, father of many. Now, from exalted father to father of many, how many children do you have? None. And it was on and on and on. Apparent delay, apparent 
delay. That God was indifferent to his needs or to his promises. So as we see in the case of Abraham, as we see in the case of King David being anointed when he was just like a little, uh, like a shepherd, from the time that he was anointed to the time that he became king of Israel. When we see Joseph being sold in slavery when he's 17 years old, and only when he was 30, he became the second in command in Egypt. As we look at the scriptures, and I know we're living in the age of the microwave, that in one minute we get things ready, we don't need to cook, and things are ready. But delay does not mean that God is indifferent, not only to his people, not only to our needs, but to his covenant promises, as we will uh, see. And although this judge was delaying, and for a while he refused to give her justice, she kept coming back to him. Delay didn't deter her from pursuing, you know, a vindication against her adversary. And although this widow apparently did not have a, li- a lawyer or anyone fighting for her, one thing that she had for her was her persistence. She kept coming back to the judge and bothering him. Look at what the judge says in verse 4 and 5. So for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So the judge says in verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. Now, we're talking about prayer. But now remember, this judge is not a picture of who God is. Jesus is not comparing the judge with God we are going to see a sharp contrast between this unrighteous judge and God. Brothers and sisters, we are not an annoyance to God. We don't bother God with our prayers. We don't nag God. We don't need to beg God the way the persistent widow had to beg the unjust judge. We are not beggars. We are his elect. We are his people. We are his covenant people. We are his sheep. And God, scripture says, as I'm going to mention, he delights to hear our voices and our prayers. Look at Proverbs 15, 8. says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. 1 Peter 3, 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we read here, brothers and sisters, we don't bother God with our prayers. Actually, God delights in the prayers of his people. God delights in the prayers of his elect. And he says here that his ears are open to their prayers. His ears are open to our prayers, which are a pleasing aroma to him that goes before his throne of grace as we pray, not only corporately, as we do here, but in our private devotional life, in our family devotional life, when we pray together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, the prayers of God's people, of his elect, are a pleasing aroma to him. But listen to what the judge says again. Yeah, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. So... so so that she will not beat me now. Literally, this means getting a, like a black eye. Like you're in a boxing match and you give someone a black eye. The verb's primary sense here is to strike someone in the face 
as in boxing, the judge was being worn out by her continual coming. She was beating him down, and he could not take it anymore. And he finally gives in and decides to give and look into her case. Not because he feared God, not because he cared for her, but because he just wanted this widow to stop bothering him. He just didn't want to deal with her anymore. And another, and, and this was the, the challenge. He just wanted to get rid of her. But another challenge for the Christian, you know, who prays, as uh, we will see, is not only that we're dealing, you know, with ungodliness, it's not only that we're dealing with this delay, but I have to be honest with my own prayer life, is many times our lack of commitment to prayer. Look what he says again. I will give her justice so that she will not be me doubt by her continual uh, coming, by her continual coming. How far I fall short of this and how, how far many times we fall short of this and how easily many times we can give up on prayer. Philip Graham Riken says, there is our physical weakness. Sometimes we fall asleep while we pray. I have done that before. There is our lazy lack of discipline. We simply do not make the time to spend time alone with God in prayer. There is our callous indifference to our world in need, which ought to be driving us to our knees. There is our foul, false sense of independence. Even if we never come right out and say it, we think we are managing so well on our own that we hardly need to pray. There is our lack of faith in the promises of God. Then there is our outright rebellion. The Spirit calls us to pray, but we refuse. And the list goes on and on. So there are many things that can actually cause us to become discouraged, that can cause us to lose heart, that can cause us to not be in this uh, frame of mind of prayer. And the Lord is not actually condemning us in his people. He's actually encouraging us. He's actually encouraging his followers to pray regardless of our circumstances because this is the point of the parable. And here we're going to see the contrast. Why should we keep on praying and not give up in the face of challenges? Why should we keep on praying and not give up in the face of adversity? It's because of our confidence. The confidence for the Christian who prays is in who God is. Look at me on verses 6, 7, and 8. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our confidence as Christians is in who God is. The God in whom we believe. The God who has revealed himself in the pages of the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New uh, Testament. The God who has revealed himself in creation. And the God who has revealed himself supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice that Jesus asks two rhetorical questions. The first one is, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, yes. Will he delay long over them? Another rhetorical question. And the question is, the answer is no. 
So the, but the first thing after answering these two uh, rhetorical questions that we can have confidence as we pray is in whom God is. Our God is a just God. Look at what it says, verse 7. And will not God give justice? He is not an unrighteous God. Like I said, Jesus in this parable is not comparing the unrighteous judge with uh, God here. God is everything that the judge is not. He is a God who gives justice. Either in this lifetime or in the life to come, uh, right, God will render perfect justice. We need to trust in him as the righteous judge of all the earth. We see the, in the persecution of the church, right, by hostile governments, countries that are hostile to the gospel, and thousands of Christians are being put to death. We see it in the corruption of our legal system, judges taking bribery and false witnesses. We see this we, when we ourselves have been treated uh, wrongly or unfairly, uh, unfairly. But there's always something, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our situation, we can always pray to our Heavenly Father because we have a mighty judge who has promised that he's going to do what is right. In the end, he will render perfect justice in the total universe. But even when we are wronged, we can pray to the righteous judge of all the earth. Remember when Abraham prayed as he was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So the ungodly judge is against everything God stands for. The judge was unloving. He was evil. He was wicked. He was ungracious. He was merciless. He was unjust. And God is loving. God is good. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's just. I love the prayer that we uh, read in the beginning here that says, that comes part of it from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer four. What is God? God is a spirit. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's infinite. He's not bound by the heavens or anything in creation. He's eternal. He has always been. He's unchangeable. He does not change. So he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness and truth. We pray with confidence knowing who God is in his being and how he has revealed himself in the scriptures to us. Every one of these perfections that we pray this morning and that we see in the scriptures, every one of the perfections of God revealed to us about whom he is, is our confidence when we pray. Is what should motivate us to pray. Because this is the God in whom we have believed. So not only we have confidence in God's perfections, in all of his attributes, in all of his actions and his deeds, look what else, what should give us confidence. Because the second thing we can have confidence as we pray is that God loves us because we are his elect. Look at verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cried to him day and night. The judge had no regard for the widow. But God has loved us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. And he knows us by name. He knows each of his people by name. When we pray to God. We are praying to a God. Who has called us in Christ. And knows us by name. We are praying to a God who has chosen us. And has loved us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. On the basis of our election. 
we can pray confidently. On the basis of our, our election, we can pray faithfully. We can pray expectantly. We, on the basis of our election, we can pray with hope, with assurance, and with confidence in God's love for his people. Far from re, re, uh, rendering, uh, rendering our, our prayers, the doctrine of election gives us more confident basis on which to pray. It should give us more confidence as we pray and as we evangelize and as we share the good news of the gospel. Because we are his people. Scripture says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And when we look at all of God's covenants in the scriptures, beginning with Adam and then going on with Abraham, with Noah, with Moses, with David, and the new covenant with Jesus. Do you know what is the overarching promise of all these covenants that we see in the scriptures that God says? I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. God has an everlasting love for his people, for his elect, and this doctrine of election should motivate us to pray because we know who God is and that he has elected people for himself. And the last thing we see here that should give us confidence as we pray is that God is wise and that he's wise in his timing. Let's read verse 7 and 8 again. I will not, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The point here is that God has not forgotten his elect. God and the Lord Jesus Christ has not ascended into heaven and forgotten the church which he bought with his own blood. He's at the right hand of the Father. And you know what the Lord is doing from the right hand of the Father? He's praying for us. I mean, it's remarkable that he's interceding for us. And he's praying to each and every one of us. God has not forgotten his elect. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. One pastor can use, he says, this is what Jesus means by speedy justice. There will not be any unnecessary delay. Unnecessary delay, but God will answer our prayers at exactly the time he knows, he knows they ought to be answered in the wisest way and according to what brings him the most glory. That God is going to answer our prayers in the most wisest way, exactly at the time that he knows they ought to be answered. Why? Because that's what's going to bring him the most glory. So Jesus here is not saying that God will answer our prayers immediately or that God will answer our prayers exactly the way we want in our own timeline and according to our own ways. But God is going to answer the prayers in the wisest way in his own timing according to what brings him the most glory. And when we consider God's timing, it's helpful to be reminded of the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 that says, One day for the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And this is the idea here. When God decides to act, when God decides to answer a prayer, it's going to be quick and it's going to be swift. Quickly does not mean immediately. Quickly means that there's not going to be any unnecessary delay 
Because God is wise in his timing. God is wise in his providence. I, I keep going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, uh, question 11, what are God's works of providence? Here's the answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And this is our confidence, brothers and sisters. The confidence for the Christian who prays is in whom God is. He's a just God. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in all of these perfections that we have just read. He's a God who loves his elect with an everlasting love. He's a God who is wise and righteous in all of his works of providence. And this is our confidence. And that's why we pray to him. Because we believe in the sovereignty of God. That's the reason why we pray. Because we believe in the promises of God in the scriptures. And let me just finish by looking at Jesus' last remark. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So remember, Jesus is speaking about the interim period here between his first coming and his second coming. In between the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. So in this interim period, what is the Lord calling us to do? These words were spoken 2,000 years ago. Think about that. Almost 2,000 years ago, these words were uh, spoken. And Jesus' last remark here has the same force as it did in the first century. And throughout the church age, these words of Jesus, where he's encouraging his people, his followers, his disciples, his church, his elect, is that throughout the entire age... Between his first and second coming, our church, the life of believers, our life has been a life characterized by prayers. We have faith in God. We are here all because we have faith in God, and God has given us that faith. Graciously, he has chosen us. Graciously, he has chosen us to be part of his people. And the point here is that continual prayer, beginning in the first century, when he spoke these words, until the time that he comes again is not only evidence of our faith, this faith that God has given to us, but is one of the ordinary means of grace that God has graciously given to his people. Not only the Lord's Supper, not only the word of God, but also prayer, one of the ordinary means of grace that God graciously has given to us his elect, his covenant people. We are his sheep. We are his people. We are his own treasure possession. How much more will God be for us, God with us, when we go to him in prayer? It's a wonderful truth here that Jesus is reminding us here this call for us to be a praying people. Jesus said that my house is going to be called what? A house of prayer for all nations. And what privilege we have to be able to confidently, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross for us, to approach the throne of grace and any time as his people 
and pray and lay our requests before his throne. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is just so much that can be said about the Christian uh, doctrine of uh, prayer, but what a beautiful reminder of who you are, that you have chosen us to be your people, that through the blood of Christ we can confidently, as Hebrews says, approach your throne of grace with confidence, knowing who you are, knowing the way that you have revealed yourself in the pages of scriptures and creation and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you stir up our hearts, our Lord, uh, as we live out faithfully uh, the Christian life in this world, as we try to be salt and, and light in this world. We know that apart from you, as you said in John 15, we can do nothing. So thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Thank you for stirring up our hearts uh, to pray. And let our marks, Lord, be characterized by uh, a life of faithful prayer, trusting in you, trusting in who you are, trusting in your promises. As the scripture says, that all the promises in your name, Jesus, are yes and there are amen. And we trust in you and we believe in you and we exalt your name above every other name not only this morning, but also forevermore. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.